Bibles, I ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 and what I would consider one of those great chapters in all of Scripture, Acts chapter 17. We find ourselves in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey as we continue here. and We'll continue in Acts 17 through the month of November. We'll take a break there as we celebrate Christmas and look to God's Word from some passages about what it means that Christ came for us, and then we'll get back to Acts next year, looking to finish it up then, and just been so grateful for the months we've spent. I've had uh, encouraged by many of you who have come to me repeatedly, even this morning, talking about how thankful you are to have been in Acts and what it has meant. So we want to continue there. Paul and his group that he's, he's uh, traveling with, Silas and Luke and Timothy, are now in Europe. They have crossed over from Asia to Europe after the Macedonian call. They're now in Europe, and they're going from town to town there, and they're presenting the gospel. Having been beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi, now they're moving on to the next city. And we find, pick up there in Acts 17, verse 1. So follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen, if you will. Luke reports, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good for us. We thank you for the truth that we find in your word, a truth that we can trust and we can build our life upon. So God, I pray that that's the case today, that you would mold us and shape us by your spirit, through your word, for your glory, that our lives would reflect you, who you are and what you have done for us. God, may you be glorified in this time now. In Jesus we pray, amen. As we get to the end of this passage, we see an accusation having been made against the believers in Thessalonica. This men of the rabble had been riled up by the Jews who were angry at the teachings of Paul, and so they go after Paul and Silas, can't find them. They bring Jason, who Paul and Silas had been staying with before, and they make an accusation. This accusation is meant to be a negative. It's meant to be an accusation or a uh, some sort of allegation, a charge against them that hopefully would either put them in jail or cause some sort of evil or bad thing to be done to them through persecution or beating or whatever. But while this allegation is made and it's meant to be a negative for them, clearly this is what we would call a badge of honor. 
some sort of insult or allegation or complaint that's made that is taken as a compliment. Taken as a compliment. These are the men who've turned the world upside down saying there's another king, Jesus. And what may be seeming like a negative allegation or accusation against the believers, their simple answer is yes. That's what we're saying. That's what we believe. You see, this accusation has turned into a badge of honor, something that was, something that was accepted. It's, it's kind of like, uh, y'all remember, though, my brother used to love Garfield. Y'all remember Garfield, the fat cat? And Garfield would always receive some sort of complaint or some sort of thing negative against him. And instead of saying, I resent that, he would say, I resemble that remark. And ultimately, that's exactly what we see here. This allegation that is made against these believers in Thessalonica should be the same accusation and allegation that can be made against all of us who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. We are the ones proclaiming him as Lord to seek to turn the world upside down. It's our very intention statement here, our goal, our, our values. It's what we seek to do, change the world for Jesus. And ultimately, that's exactly what they were doing in Thessalonica. In chapter 16, we saw how the gospel proclaimed can change lives. We saw Lydia, the businesswoman who had done well for herself, who was converted when she heard Paul explain from the scriptures the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw a demon-possessed slave girl who heard the name of Jesus. The demon fled, and she believed and followed after Paul and Silas. We saw this Roman soldier who was a jailer in Philippi who came to faith after the earth quaked and, and, and he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? So you go this full gamut from a, a rich business lady to a, a Roman jailer with a, a demon-possessed slave girl in between. The gospel of Jesus Christ can save anybody from their sins. He is sufficient and he is enough. And now as we move to chapter 17, we see the power of God's word and its relevance for us today. We not only see he can change every life, we see that his word is powerful and meets us right where we are. In the middle of this second missionary journey, Paul and his companions are traveling along. It tells us in verse 1 that they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and we're not sure why. We don't really know why Paul didn't stay there in those cities and preach or proclaim at that time. We're not really sure why he kept just passing through, but, but maybe you see it in the next verse. They came to Thessalonica, a much larger city where there was a synagogue of the Jews. It appears that this was a part of Paul's strategy. Passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, he comes to Thessalonica, where there is a synagogue of the Jews. This is what he did, by the way, in Asia, when he was going through town to town in his first missionary journey. He would find a synagogue. He would go into the synagogue, and he would reason with them from the scriptures. And so now, having come to Philippi, there was no synagogue there. Maybe passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, there's none there. He hears of one in Thessalonica, and he goes to Thessalonica because there in the synagogue, the Old Testament, if you will, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, would be read every single Sabbath. And so Paul is able to go in there and look at those scriptures with them, read them, and he will explain them to, him, to them. He will point them to the meaning behind them. 
Whatever the case is, we see Paul has a strategy. And I want you to know, if we're going to change the world for Jesus, we too must have a strategy. It does not happen by us simply sitting back and waiting for them to come to us. It does not happen by us just simply having no plan and just hoping we run into someone with a conversation, hoping we we find someone that can open it up, hoping that we can search someone out. If we're going to change the world for Jesus, it will be one person at a time through the proclamation of the gospel with a strategy by his people to reach them. We spent the whole last month talking about this, our month of impact in our our life groups here at the church where we talked about being saved means that we are sent. We are saved, we are sent. We discussed what our testimonies are in Christ Jesus and what he has done and how we share those. We talked about sharing the gospel through the three circles where we show how how God has a perfect design. Our sin has ruined that perfect design, but but God has come sending his son to to bring us back to him and and reconcile us to him. And we then talked about a strategy. Dealing with people, our oikos, as you've heard Pastor Stephen say. Dealing with people where we live, where we work, where we play, who are close to us but far from God. And going out into those places, understanding that our responsibility today is not just to survive, but to thrive through the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it to those who are close to us and far from God. This is what we do with a strategy of God's people. Now, surely we hold those strategies with an open hand. God may change it at any time. There may be someone today right in front of your face saying, just like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? You don't need to say to them, this doesn't fit into my strategy. Tell them of the gospel. But my point is, if we're going to change the world for Jesus, then we must have a plan to reach people anywhere we are and everywhere we go where we live, where we work, and where we play. Paul went to Thessalonica, to the synagogue, with the plan. And he preached and proclaimed the gospel. And when he did, many were persuaded and many believed it. Many persuaded and many believed. And and some of those people followed after him, it tells us. But then there were some other Jews here in the synagogue who became angry and They got the men of rabble, of the rabble, if you will, got them riled up and were seeking to bring these charges and allegations against Paul and against Silas. And as Luke reports this interaction here in Thessalonica, he gives us a glimpse into the ministry of Paul himself. What were the people that made this claim? These are the men who turned the world upside down. What were they so upset about? What were they so angry about? Luke wants to tell us, and I believe as we look at this passage, we can see Paul's ministry and method of turning the world upside down. First, we see everything Paul said was based upon the scriptures. If you're going to turn the world upside down, Paul had a firm belief that it would be through the authority and proclamation of God's word, through the authority of God's word. This is why he liked the synagogue, as I said. This is where the Old Testament was read, the 39 books that they had as these Jews were spread out after persecution and and gone throughout all of the Roman uh, Roman colonies. And and they were there. They they had gathered together. And anywhere that there were 10 Jewish families with 10 Jewish men, they could form a synagogue. And they come together and they read the scriptures together, most likely reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation here in Greece of the Old Testament. And they're reading that together. And Paul knew... And he went there that all of those scriptures they were reading were pointing people to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has already told him this in Luke 24. He said all of it, the law, the prophets, the writings are talking about me. And so Paul goes into a place where they're reading those scriptures and he's saying, let me tell you who they're talking about. Let me tell you what scripture says. Because what scripture says, God says. What do we mean when we say the scripture, the authority of God's word? When we say the authority of God's word, we mean that it is our sole ground for all matters of faith and practice. God's word is our sole ground for all matters of faith and practice. If you were to consider it like a house, God's word is our foundation. We build our life upon his word. We build our life upon his word. But not only that, God's word is like the roof as well, the foundation and the roof. And now y'all understand what I'm saying here because if you've had kids in your house or if you are a child now, you have probably heard someone with authority in your house say something to the effect of not under my roof, right? Giving the sense of this is where I set the rules and set the standards. And what we look at when we look at God's word and what we mean when it's our authority, it's what we build our life on and it's what we put ourselves under that we follow. His rules, his standards, his roof that we put ourselves under. The scriptures are our authority that has come. It's what we subject ourselves to and submit ourselves to. Now, all of us are submitting ourselves to some authority. We may fool ourselves into thinking it's us and we've got full authority and all other things. We may put ourselves under some authority of some other religion, some other thing, some other place, whatever it may be. We're all submitting to some authority. And what Paul is proclaiming here is that the scriptures are our authority. God's word is our authority. And what, what the scripture says, God says. When we look at God's word, we believe in the inspiration of God's word. Written by the Old Testament written by 40 men through over 1,400 years, if you will. And in that time, we recognize that those men were inspired by the Spirit of God. So while we have 40 different authors over 1,400 years, we have one main author, the Spirit of God. And Paul tells, reminds Timothy in his second letter that, that in Timothy, here even present for this, he reminds him that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Therefore, God's word is inspired by God. So every word that is written in the scriptures is exactly what God wanted to be written for us today. And it speaks to us because it's inspired by his Holy Spirit. God's word. God's word. When it comes to God's word then, if it's God-inspired, given to us as a sole authority for life and practice, we do not need to update it. God's word stands forever. We do not need to change it. God's word is relevant for all of eternity. We do not need to protect it. Could you imagine turning a lion loose on the middle of a crowded beach and saying, hey, y'all, don't hurt the lion? God's word is that. God's word is enough. It is sufficient. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And no one needs to protect it from anything. We just simply, like the apostle Paul, proclaim it for those who would believe. We proclaim God's word. This has been a source of great trouble throughout history. What do we do with God's word? And throughout history, men and women have sought to make scripture more relevant sometimes to modern times. Uh, we get to it and we read it, and this is an old book, right? And, and we need to make it more relevant for us today. And in fact, in the early 20th century, this became a major controversy called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. 
And during this time, a very popular pastor who was on the radio, pastoring a major large church in New York City, this popular pastor began to preach that we really need to, to change the scriptures and make them more relevant for modern men and women. Surely modern men and women, with all that we have been enlightened with, surely we look at the scriptures and we recognize that, that man, some of these things here don't really happen. Have we ever seen someone raised from the dead? Have we ever seen someone walk on water? Have we, surely that's in there and that's not true, right? We need to make it more relevant for us who are enlightened and have seen more. This pastor's name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. Fosdick said it's silly to believe in the virgin birth. It's silly to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. It's silly even to believe in the second coming of Christ. For Fosdick, he said, supernaturalism was nonsense to those who are enlightened with modern times. We know better, right? Fosdick gained a great following in this, leading many people toward this position and uh, many people coming to hear him preach and others. The conservative, a guy by the name of J. Gresham Machen, was asked about Fosdick's popularity. And he said, the question is not whether Mr. Fosdick is winning men, but whether the thing to which he is winning them to is really Christianity. This was so important that Machen penned, I think, one of the most important books in church history, Christianity and Liberalism, liberalism 1925, and still valuable for us today. And Machen's argument is simply this. What Fosdick is preaching is not another form of Christianity or not an updated Christianity. What he is preaching is not Christianity at all. You see, if you were to take away the supernaturalism of the scripture, then you lose Christ himself. Then you lose hope of the gospel. Then you lose any eternal life. If you were to take away what Christ came to do, then you have no gospel to proclaim. There is no Christianity without the virgin birth. There's no Christianity without the cross of Christ. There's no Christianity without the resurrection. And of course, there's no Christianity without our blessed hope, the second coming that we long for, what Jesus will physically return for us. And all of these things that we proclaim are found in the word of God. Paul believed that what we do is we take people to the scriptures we don't take them away. We don't try to hide them. We don't try to ease them into it. We simply proclaim the word of God because we believe the word of God. And Paul's confidence was based upon the truth of God's word. God's word changes lives. We don't shy away from his word. We proclaim his word. Paul's confidence was there. And so is ours. Here in our passage, four quick Words are given in succession, if you will, describing what Paul does with the word of God. It says, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. First, Paul reasoned with them. What is in view here is a form of apologetics. Paul would take the word and he would make the case for Christianity over against whatever current worldview or system was there. He would make the case for Christianity against the gods of Rome. He would make the case for Christianity against the popular mores of the day that were against God. He would make the case for Christianity against whatever is out there showing that Christianity is better. It is better than all others. It gives us more. It gives us actually what we're asking for. You see, Paul did not shy away from dealing with the difficult topics of the day, and neither should we. Our views are not based upon simply feelings, but the truth of God's word. 
And so we confront, even in our own day, things that go against God's word with his truth. And we know there is so much out there that is taken as true that goes directly against God's word from gender confusion to same-sex attraction to this, that, and the other. All of those things are there. And our tendency sometimes is to shy away from those topics as if shying away will truly help. Paul says, no, we, we take the God's word and we proclaim it. And we confront those things with the truth because those things are error. Those things are error. We confront it with the truth. He reasoned from God's word. But not only that, he reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary. He explained the scriptures. This literally means to open. He pointed them to God's word. He pointed them to passage they may not have ever discovered before, ever seen before. And he showed them the treasures found within God's word. He opened up the word to show them this. And he explained it to them. This, this comes from the same place in Luke 24 where Jesus had met with his disciples the day he was raised again. He meets with them that night, and Jesus steps in, and he says he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. It's the same thing here. Paul is opening up the word of God and explaining it to them so they would understand it with the truth. Treasures are to be found, and the more you mine God's word, the more gold and treasures that you find there. Paul opens up the word and says, let me show you what it is teaching you. Let me show you the treasures that are there. Not only that, it says he proved them. Not only did he reason with them and explain the, tre the word, he proved the word. Proving means he answered questions and responded to what other objections were there. It says he does this three straight weeks. Surely they come in, they hear, they go home, they, they write down their questions, they got some ideas, and they come back and they say, what about this or what about that? And from there, Paul stands clear and proves over and over again that the Bible is true. Just imagine the claims that I've made today. I've made the claims that this is God's word breathed out for us, inerrant, infallible, and inspired, given to us as the sole authority for life and salvation. Surely those who were against Christianity, surely those throughout church history have tried to prove this word was not sufficient, have tried to prove it was not enough, have tried to take it away and undermine this word, but we are still here today. We're here today because we believe it. We're here today because we trust it. We're here today because this word has changed our lives. And even though many would bring allegations and charges against us, what we would say is, I once was blind, but now I see. You see, that's what the blind man said in John chapter 9, right? In John chapter 9, the blind man's confronted with Jesus, and, and Jesus takes away his blindness and gives him sight. And he goes to the temple to praise God, and they start asking all kind of questions. Who did this, and who did that, and, and what did they do, and don't you know it's the Sabbath, and this, that, and the other, and what was the blind man's response? I don't know about your rules. I don't know about all these things you're asking. What I do know is I once was blind, and now I see. So it is for all who believe. When we come to God's Word, we may not be able to answer every question. We may not be able to prove it like Paul. We may not be able to explain every little detail like that, but what we do know is God's Word is life to us. And it's brought life to us. And it's given us our hope. And it's made what was wrong right again. That's what we do know. Paul opened it up to prove it, that every time God's word is questioned, every time it's part, it's never irrelevant. It's always speaking us to right, speaking to us right where we are with just what we need. 
over and over again. And third and finally, fourth and finally, excuse me, he's reasoned, explained, and proved as he proclaimed it. We've talked about this over and over again in Acts. This is what you do. You go out, you proclaim God's word. Notice, it says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. By proclaiming it, that is to say that he proved, explained, and reasoned all from the scriptures, the main theme of all the text. The main theme from Genesis to Revelation is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's come to save his people from their sins. The Bible is not a story about how we find God. The Bible is a story about how God came to us and redeemed us and saved us. One author, one subject, one great promise that Jesus Christ is everything. He's the hope of salvation. He's the one who's conquered death. He's the one who's brought life. Paul opened it up and proclaimed Jesus. He took the Jesus of history, the man who lived, the man who healed, the man who taught, the man who performed miracles, and the man who died on a cross. He took the Jesus of history and he said, the one who lived amongst us, who did all of these things, is the Christ, the Messiah of all of Scripture. He pointed from the text and showed Jesus is the promised one. He is the one who will fulfill all things. He is the one who will bring salvation to his people. He's the promised Savior that would save God's people from their sins. And how do we know at the heart of Paul's message, he's proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. How do we know Jesus is the one? How do we know he is the Savior? How do we know he can save us? How do we know what he says is true? Paul says, because he is alive. He's alive. And because Jesus is alive, everything he said is true. Everything he's ever done is true. It proves it all because he died and he rose again. This is Paul's whole point. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there was no resurrection. He could have been just a good teacher. There was no resurrection. Jesus was just a good teacher. Hey, he told some good things. Every once in a while, he got a little carried away with himself, talking about how he's God, but, but he said some good things. If there's no resurrection, then, then surely he was a powerful leader. He led a movement, and he showed what leadership is, and you can study his life and get some leadership principles. If there was no resurrection, then surely he's somebody your kids can look up to. I mean, look at Jesus. Let's look up to him. He was a good dude. If there's no resurrection, Jesus though, is just a footnote in the history of the Jewish people. He's just a little note in their story. If there's no resurrection, we might get a line or two about him. We may get a little footnote there at the bottom. If there's no resurrection, then none of us have ever heard of this guy before. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then we are all most to be pitied. But Jesus rose again. He conquered death. Because he conquered death, he's not just a good teacher. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Because he conquered death, he's not just a powerful leader. He is the one who is our good shepherd that will lead us safely home through the valley of the shadow of death. Because he rose again, he's not just a good example to us to look for. He's our savior who died in our place, who we have no salvation apart from him. Because he is a good 
leader, because he is a good teacher, because he is a powerful leader, because he is the one we look to, above all of those things, he is alive. And we worship him as king and Lord. He rose again, so Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. And anyone who calls on his name are his people. That is the message that turns the world upside down. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve were created by God to know God and to be with him. They had peace with God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the great disturber of God's peace enters in and sells them a pack of lies and they believe the lies over the truth. They rebel against God and they turn from him. And now we who, who are in their line and their lineage of Adam and Eve, we too are separated from God because of our sin. And there really is no peace between God and man. In fact, all of history has been man trying to find some peace, right? They, they look to the mountains, they look to the stars, they look to their friends, they look to whatever they possibly can. Their checkbook, whatever it is, they're trying to find some peace. All throughout history has been the search for peace. And what Jeremiah tells us is that apart from God, we we all say peace, peace, and there is no peace. There is no peace. The charges that were brought against these men in this town for proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord died and rose again was that they were disturbing the peace. We had it the way we wanted it. Everything's cool here. We've got a king. He's Caesar. We've got what we need. Finances are good. We have enough food. Everything's good. They don't need to disturb our peace. But what they didn't know is what they thought was peace is really no peace at all. It's really no peace at all. Here the message was of another king and another kingdom who has truly brought peace to his people by reconciling them back to God through his own death and resurrection. Jesus is the true king who restores peace to all that was lost and anybody who would believe in him. I truly believe, and I will believe this to the day I die, that the 1990s gave us everything that was glorious and good. Y'all will get that later. I can reason with that and explain it. 1990s gave us a song. One of my first albums bought Truth. Truth sang a song, 1994, Living Life Upside Down. Russ Lee belted it out. The chorus, it begins with a chorus, and it says this. What if we fall into the bottom of a well, thinking we've risen to the top of a mountain? What if we are knocking at the gates of hell, thinking we're heaven-bound? What if we reach up and touch the ground to find we're living life upside down? Reality, that is a fear for all of us, right? We think we're heaven-bound, but we're knocking at the gates of hell? We think we're risen to the top of the mountain with all understanding and knowledge, but we fall into the bottom of the well? You see what... 
what Paul had come to do that day in that synagogue and what he proclaimed was to let people know that there is no peace apart from God. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. There is no salvation except through the offering that Jesus made on the cross. And there is no eternal life until we trust in the one who's conquered death for all eternity. That's what they bring. That's what he's saying. And those of you who claim peace in this world, you need to know that there is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. He takes what is wrong and he makes it right. He takes what is broken and he heals it and makes it pure again. He takes what is wicked in this world and he makes it true. Jesus is the only one who can bring the salvation and the longing that we're looking for. He takes what is upside down and turns it right side up for his glory and for his name. And what we proclaim is the hope of salvation in him and him alone. That's what we proclaim to our friends. Think about it. Our friends, our loved ones, where we live, work, and play, we're close to them. They're far from God. They may be going through life thinking that they're heaven-bound only to find out they're knocking at the gates of hell. Who will tell them? And may it not be some criminal neglect in us. But let's tell them of the one who came to bring true peace. Let's explain to them from the scriptures. Let's reason with them from the word. Let's prove to them if it takes time, as long time as it takes, it's worth it that we tell them of the Christ who has come to bring peace for them. What about you? May it not be the case that anyone here has think, thinking you're risen to the top of a mountain only to be at the bottom of the well. May it not be the case that anyone in this room right now thinks you're okay with God, yet you're not. And it will not, by God's grace, be a criminal neglect in me to not proclaim from the pulpit today that Jesus is your only hope. The only way you'll find life and salvation is by turning to Christ. The only way you'll know what is true and is right is by looking to him, trusting in him and giving your life to him. He's the one who can take you who are living upside down, who are claiming peace, peace, and there is no peace. He's the one who can bring true peace. It's Christ. And he's the one we preach. He's the one we proclaim, and we take whatever accusation is slung at us in this world because the sad part is the world believes they're okay. But Christ, Christ has come, and he's the only one that can make it right again. So we proclaim Christ. And may it not be the case that anyone here thinking you're heaven-bound only to be knocking at the gates of hell. Today, you trust in Christ who can turn your life right side up, who can make what's wrong right again, who can wipe away your sins and give you a hope that lasts forever. Christ. It's only Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. And he is enough. So God, my prayer today is that no one in this room will be living life upside down. That today they will trust in the only one who brings true peace. The only one who makes things that are wrong right again. The only one who can wash away their sins and make them whiter than snow. God, lives that are broken, Jesus is the one who puts them back together. 
God, may they trust in Christ today. And may you stir within each and every heart of those of us who believe the desire to leave this place and proclaim the name of Jesus. For he is what all people are truly wanting and needing. It's the only one that can satisfy whether they know it or not. May we proclaim Christ. God, work now in our hearts and in this time. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's him we lift up even now. If you're here today and you know you've been living life upside down, we'd be ready to receive you, to speak to you about Christ who can make what's wrong right again. If you're here today and you've got someone who's a loved one, a friend, where you live, work, and play that's on your heart today, this front is open. I'm here. We'd love to pray with you as we seek to proclaim Jesus as the true peace for all people and turn this world upside down for his name. Let's stand together and sing this testimony.